Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. All right, here we go. Another episode of Room for Growth. Today, Billy, uh, the leaves are changing. Well, they're not actually changing. The weather is starting to cool. It is fall season vibes. Like, what is it? The pumpkin lattes. All, all that is in the air. But another thing that is in the air is it's budget season. And we're talking to a lot of clients about, all right, what initiatives are we taking on next year? What types of things are we com- pulling internal? What types of things do we need outside help for? And then also there's a lot of talk around, okay, how can we improve some of these programs that might not be performing at the, the level that we were hoping for? So there's just a lot of questions out there in the environment at the moment. And this is in parallel with a, a market that's kind of confusing. It's been a, a lot of turmoil. So just tons of questions. And today on, our, on the podcast, we have a guest where we're going to really talk about strategy. And so often... When these big budget discussions are happening, it's kind of overwhelming. And we've noticed that clients, and it's so easy to forget some really basic steps of how to really build out a thoughtful strategy and how to make some really complex decisions in a tight amount of time. So something we're seeing, and I know we were just talking about some of these basic steps. So what do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. It is soup season, it is cider season, and it is strategy season, baby. Let's go. We're going to figure out how to close 2022 out super strong figure out what we're doing in 2023, get all of our ducks in a row and ready to roll. Um, And we love to be a part of that. But one of the things that we see is that there is a huge difference in our clients who have a killer strategy, meaning it's a roadmap that actually guides how we make decisions, how we think about prioritizing what we invest in, what features we build, what messages we send, where we put time and effort versus those where their strategy doesn't actually define their competitive advantage, the value they bring their customers, or the experiences that we're trying to build for them. So our guest today, Jared Cady, is a senior vice president of strategy here at Willow Tree. He helps with everything from our commercial strategy as a business to responding to virtually every RFP. If you are not in an agency, RFP means a request for proposal, which is usually this like long detailed document that larger companies put out when they need help solving a problem that might be building an app for the first time or updating it. It might be recreating their backend stack or creating their growth stack or developing their loyalty strategy. But all of these documents, these RFPs that come through, Jared is cornerstone to how we respond to them when we decide to compete for a different piece of business. He's at the center of how we determine what we are going to tell a client they should do and what we would do if we were chosen to be their partner. So his day is working in strategy. He's got this big whiteboard behind him constantly. At least that's how I think about him. He's never more than 10 steps from a whiteboard. He's always drawing a two by two square somewhere. um, And he's helping plot out and do a ton of storytelling on behalf of just not like who we are as Willow Tree, what gives us a competitive advantage in market, but what our clients should be doing as well. So he's incredibly well-versed across different industries across digital and technology, as well as marketing. He's always a person whose brain I go to pick when I need to better understand um, a problem at large. And he just creates a lot of clarity and ways of thinking about how to be better at strategy. 
Yeah. And you'll hear in our interview, I think, and it's really good reminder as you're heading into thinking about next year, Jared talks a little bit about two things. I mean, one is just the most basic concept of stepping back and saying, okay, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And I think that's a, a basic step that we get so tactical so fast. It's like, okay, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And then Jared's like the king of frameworks. He's got like a framework for every different scenario. And so he's kind of a, a person that I know that I lean to and say, hey, how do you think we should approach solving this problem? And he's always got a, a nice framework that gets you into a lane and keeps some of the conversation structured so, and, and disciplined so you don't just uh, start throwing tactics out right out of the gate. So we're excited to uh, share uh, Jared with you today and, and really uh, hear more about uh, some frameworks and how to approach a strategy. Sweet. All right, Jared, Katie, welcome to Room for Growth. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. You know, Billy and I, we get to partner with you a lot in, in the work that we're delivering for our clients and on different uh, strategy projects. So we have been inside your brain and I'm so excited that you're going to share some of that with our listeners today. So before we just start pounding you with questions, because we, I think there's like 50 questions on here that we're ready to go with. Can you just introduce yourself, tell our listeners, who you are and how you got to Willow Tree, a little bit about your journey. Sure. So firstly, I'm sorry you've spent any time inside my brain. That's a, <laughs> just a terrifying place to be in. Yeah, I'm Jared Cady. I'm Senior Vice President of Commercial Strategy and Operations for Willow Tree. So I sit within our commercial team, but I also lead our product strategy practice because our point of view is at every interaction you have with Willow Tree, we want to bring a strategic point of view to that conversation. So that could be the very first intro call as a prospective customer or before you're even aware of us, how are we bringing our brand to life for you in a way that's specific to you, kind of cuts through the B2B marketing noise, right? And so then we get into RFPs. We often win on showing up with a point of view on what the product should be or could be, right? We're very rarely given a set of requirements that just says, build this, right? right. Part of our role is to help imagine what could be possible and just start bringing up a perspective on the client's strategy from day one such that they feel like they're going to be in good hands if they choose to work with us. And then we don't solve everything in that RFP process, right? And so typically the first phase of a product build would be some amount of strategy to figure out, hey, who are the users? What are the enduring unmet needs that we're going to really be addressing here? What are the features that we'd be prioritizing as part of that? And the degrees of uncertainty around the product could be rather variable. In some instances, you know, it's a booking flow for a hotel chain. That's a fairly well-defined problem. Right? right. But if something's much more kind of further out the ambition matrix from an innovation standpoint for a client, helping them really put shape to something that's super fuzzy could also be a big part of what we do in the strategy practice. And so, yeah, it's just, it's bringing a perspective on your client's business at every step of the Willow Tree customer journey. And that's kind of very broadly speaking, my remit. So Jared, basically you're saying that today you work at kind of the intersection of sales and proposals, how we think about what to envision for our clients. And then strategy. What's our point of view on that? But this ability around articulating strategy in a way that is good is something we're going to get into really heavily today. What's the difference between a good strategy, a bad strategy? How do we get better at strategy collectively? But before we dig into that, you have worked in a whole bunch of fields. You have been everywhere from Disney to Deloitte to Amex. And I'm curious, what are some of the primary strategy lessons that you learned in those experiences that you carry with you? 
Sure. That's, yeah, that's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to uncover. Um, <laughs> please unpack everything you've learned in your entire career. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I started at a management consultant firm called Monitor Group. And I think I went in thinking, oh, I'll be here for two years and I'll learn a lot. And I managed to stay for over a decade. If you think about a learning accelerant, management consulting, I would argue, and I'm obviously super biased, is unrivaled in terms of, you know, I had the opportunity to work across retail in CPG, various flavors of financial services, healthcare, nonprofits, media, on all sorts of different business problems. And so you're constantly working with new and different teams. You're being exposed to different leadership models, leadership styles, different industries, different problems. And so that freshness is what kept me around. And so to answer what I took away or what I learned from that experience is almost impossible. But I did a lot in our marketing strategy practice, which, you know, in those instances, the product itself was relatively fixed. And then you're trying to find out the customer needs that it's going to address such that you can position it to win in the marketplace. And then the second half of my career or my time in Monitor was in our innovation design practice, which is almost the inverse in the sense that you start from the customer, you uncover those needs, and then you define the product uh, accordingly. And so the intersection of those two or the kind of overlap of those two has been a lot of fun and kind of an enduring part of my career journey. From there, I, I decided to go into industry, wanted to see what it was like kind of on the other side, right? And I think a lot of people who spend time in professional services are curious. And so... I went to American Express, which is a fantastic company. I spent about five years there, my first time doing product management and being exposed to the engineering side of how you build something, right? So not just how do you market it you know, and how do you envision it, but then how do you actually bring it to life kind of in, in a tangible digital context. American Express, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize this. American Express was founded in 1850. It was like a Pony Express business. So the Express part was they were literally moving goods around New York State and then eventually all across the country. And so you've got a business that's 172 years. So the lesson around constantly reinventing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Going from the movement of physical goods to the movement of money, money orders, traveler's checks, credit cards, now digital payments, that's very much imbued within the culture. And when Amex hits a rough spot, I think the rallying cry is we've done this before. And it creates confidence in the broader organization to kind of go and tackle that, which I think is really really admirable and one of the neater parts of the business, always willing to kind of invest in innovation and try new and different things. And so that would be a kind of a, one of a kind of central takeaway I have from my time at Amex. Yeah. And then I found myself here at Willow Tree, where again, I think, you know, if you think about the strategy of our business, started in 2008, recognized early on that mobile was coming. And I think actually pivoted very early in the days of the company. This is before any of us were actually part of Willow Tree, right? But I think the Willow Tree 1.0 was trying to create the app that one in the app store. And our, our now CEO, Tobias, I think recognized actually we'll be better off as a professional services company being less incumbent on having the idea and rather helping a wide variety of folks who are going to be brand new to mobile, mm -hmm. figure out what their ideas are and kind of partner with them and recognizing very early on that you actually needed to integrate a very set, specific set of capabilities to do that effectively, right? So strategy, design, and engineering. And I would lump kind of marketing and growth marketing strategy kind of within that strategy bucket. So I'm using it kind of very broadly, but the recognition that to bring a great digital product or digital experience to life, you need all three of those working in concert is actually really powerful. Because as I think about the competitive set that we go up against in the marketplace, everyone's coming at it from a historic legacy of we're a white glove strategy consulting firm. And now we're going to suddenly talk to you about kind of engineering products. Sure. Or we're a creative agency, very design-centric. 
but you know, really going to architect a backend or a heavy engineering place where the elegance of the UI typically gets lost in an organization like that. And so I think our competitive model was A, integrating those capabilities from day one, and then B, actually being very thoughtful about where we set up our business, right? There's not a lot of tech companies in Charlottesville, Virginia. And this kind of college town advantage in our early days, a great attractor of both emerging talent, kind of from top universities, folks who want to kind of downshift a little bit from the the hustle and bustle of New York City, which is my experience. We moved from Brooklyn. We'd had our second child, said, let's get out of Dodge uh, and came back to Charlottesville. And it's just a great quality of life. And so having set up the business here, I think has been a critical differentiator. And, you know, you have to evolve and adapt. I think it's less differentiated today than it was uh, Mm -hmm. in the past. But again, the the lessons around strategy that you can learn from some of those, I think, uh, certainly stay with me. It's awesome. So, Jared, you know, you highlighted the consulting experience gives you this opportunity to do so many different types of projects with so many different types of clients. Is there a, I'm curious, as you like look back on all these different experiences from projects you were deeply involved on to maybe projects where you were part of the, the beginning strategy phase, is there one that you like when you're like laying your head down at night and you're thinking about? Dang, that was fun. I loved that project. Are there any, uh, is there a project, like what was your favorite project that if you're allowed to talk about it, I don't know how how many legal documents you've signed over the years, probably a lot. So uh, anything that you're willing to share (laughs) that uh, you just still hold on to as one of your favorites? That's like asking what your, who's your favorite child. That's really hard. I know. And I know, I know you have a favorite, so come on. Yeah, there's so many, but for a global beer company, (laughs) this was earlier in my career. We helped them build a three-dimensional, maybe four-dimensional segmentation. So historically, our segmentations would be kind of, you know, you know two core central areas of variables that you're working with. And so that would have been the 2D. But this was the idea that understanding the consumer, both in kind of how you would segment the consumer, the beer drinker, mm-hmm. right? And how you would think about their behaviors at the intersection of their just baseline preferences as a consumer, their anticipated consumption occasion, their purchase location, and the purchase occasion itself. And we often think about this consumer, right? The craft beer drinker, that's a consumer. But that person often behaves very differently when they're at their favorite kind of geek out beer store, getting something to just try and experiment with on Friday night Mm -hmm. versus hosting a large gathering of people where they have to be mindful of a much more maybe diverse array of tastes and palates. And so what they'll purchase and where they go is going to be very different. And so it just a really fascinating but intense project of trying to map intersections of all these things in a way that's reflective of actually what's happening in the marketplace and not taking an overly simplistic view of, you know, this is what you buy at convenience stores or this is what you buy at supermarkets or this is what this consumer wants. Mm-hmm. This is what that consumer wants. It's more nuanced. It's way more nuanced. Yeah. It's multi, multifactorial. And in that complexity, you find a lot of interesting kind of marketing angles you bring okay. to bear and how you position products, et cetera. So interesting because today so much segmentation is based off of a behavior or a behavioral trigger, what somebody's done and what. how do you want to respond to it? How do you want to be conversational or how do you take a past purchasing decision and bring it forward to future decision-making. But what you're saying I think is interesting because it was like an early challenge to the idea of like Joe who shops for beer, Mary who occasionally drinks on the weekend, like these very flat personas that are fairly meaningless in nature. 
the early challenge of it to say, no, any given person could have a different purchasing habit in a number of situations. It's fun that for you, that was like an early project that stood with you. Yeah. If you're not being overly sophisticated, right? You'd see on a purchase, oh, this person got an 18 Mm -hmm. pack of Bud Light, right? And then you're going to hammer them with Bud Light ads for the next- uh, (laughs) Yeah. They're a Joe drinks beer. Three months, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, And that maybe was for- a party or a guy, a Super Bowl party or something. And that's actually not reflective of this person's general attitudes toward kind of what it is that they, what their preferences are from a brand standpoint. So Jared, you have the joy of having the term strategy in your title, which I think implies something about how, what you understand about strategy and how to create a good strategy. Talk to us just a bit about what sort of education background experience should somebody have before they have strategy strictly in their title? If any, that might be a trick question. And then to start talking to us about what differentiates a good strategy from a bad strategy. Why don't I start with the, the latter part? Okay, and let's great. try to circle back to who can do that. Because I think the answer is a lot of different people. And there's no such thing as a natural strategist who's just born <laughs> as a strategy. You didn't get your doctorate of strategy? I did not. I do <laughs> okay. have a couple of degrees in the business realm. So I've cheated a little bit, but I, even that I don't, I'd argue isn't necessary. At the end of the day, strategy is about making choice. It's about articulating the choices you need to make and then being bold in, the, in, in how you choose. And that's a very simplistic way of describing it. But when you think about it in that light, I think it also makes it much more approachable. I'm a huge fan, personally, of, of someone named Roger Martin. And Roger spent a good chunk of his career at Monitor Group, where I had worked previously. Uh, and that's certainly how I became aware of his work. He went on to be the, the dean of the School of Business at the University of Toronto. He's often kind of credited as being a great thought leader in the field of strategy. And... He has a framework and, you know, I love a good framework. Most strategists do. He's got a framework called the, the choice cascade, the strategic choice cascade. And it's a process of strategic choice structuring. And it's a set of interconnected choices that you make kind of not so much sequentially, but in concert so that they're so that collectively they make sense. But it starts from what's our winning aspiration? What are we trying to achieve in the marketplace? And then where will we play? How will we win? What capabilities are required to do that, to win? And what management systems need to be in place to know we've done so? And I won't unpack all five of those questions. That's a lot. But I think personally, I find the two most critical ones are where to play and how to win. And where to play occurs, and I should make the point, these questions I think are relevant at the corporate level. Mm -hmm. They're relevant at the business unit level. They're relevant at the product level. I think they can be applied in a marketing context, and we can talk about that in just a second. But where to play is it's creating boundaries of what where you're not going to play. So strategy as choice is just as important to think about what you're not going to do. Mm-hmm. But from a where to play standpoint, what are the service lines or product sets and categories either as defined by the world today or as defined by ourselves from an innovation standpoint are we going to play in? What geographies are we going to prioritize? What customers or segments are we going to prioritize? And so the choice to be different in that is really, really powerful. And so people talk a lot about something like the concept of blue ocean strategy, right? Blue ocean strategy is a where to play choice that says, I'm not going to play where others are. And so as Sony and Microsoft are duking it out over who can have the most pixel perfect experience in gaming, 
right? And with the PlayStation and the Xbox, Nintendo kind of zags when they're zigging, right? And you would never compare the Wii's experience or the Switch's experience Mm -hmm. from a graphics standpoint to anything like what Sony and Microsoft are doing. They compete, I'd argue, with a different segment, right? The people who got left behind by hardcore gaming and just want to spend 30 minutes as a family or as a multi-generational group just having fun. And that's the user segment they're going to go after. And so the the how to win changes too, right? The choice about how you, what that product experience looks and feels like is more reflective of the customer set that they're going after mm-hmm. relative to a, a Sony or Microsoft. And so where to play kind of a really critical piece. The how to win side is how are we going to be different, right? You only win in the marketplace by being different. And that's something that we do in all of our RFP responses, right? Why should this client choose Willow Tree? What are our win themes? These are the reason, you know, and how are those supported by a series of reasons to believe that we make sense for you? There's a lot of things we could talk about as a business when we go in to pitch our work. Um, but we try to be very thoughtful about given who this client is, what they want, what they need, the project, the context of their business beyond even the project. What do they need to believe in order to choose Willow Tree? And so the how to win choices are you know, a lot of kind of how, how you configure your asset set, your product suite. And I think those two choices in, mm-hmm. in concert are really, really powerful. I'm curious, like, you know, so these frameworks are awesome. And especially if you're in a marketing department or you're a product manager and you're tasked with evolving a strategy, you know, hey, our loyalty program's not delivering at the rate that it needs to be delivering. How can we improve it? Or this product, the conversion rate's not very good. What should we do? You know, that our listeners are faced with all these types of problems and these frameworks are really good to, as a great place to start. What do you think though, for a, a listener that is tasked with something like this, what are the type of inputs that they need before they really start building out the strategy process and, and moving through that process? You know, like I know a lot of our clients typically are looking at competitors and, and focused on, on what the competitor is doing. What are like key inputs that you think a product manager, marketing person at a company tasked with a, uh, developing a new strategy for their, their business? What are, the, what are the inputs that you think they need? You need some alignment around the goals and the outcomes you're trying to achieve, right? I think you start from there. Are we looking for 10% growth in this product set? or kind of a marginal increase in conversion, or are we looking for 10x growth of the business? And I'm being a little bit pretty up big ends of the spectrum, right? Because that's going to drive a lot of how ambitious you almost need to be in the solution sets you're considering. And that would inform, like, are you tasking me right now with transforming this business, creating something the world has never seen before? Or are you asking me to kind of innovate within the core and make us just 10% better every year at what we do every day? So that aspiration question, I think, is actually really important. It's a good one. Quantifying down to people, I think is right. Like understanding, are we trying to get a thousand people to do a small thing? Are we trying to get a million people to do a smaller thing? Are we trying to get 10 people to do a big thing? Yeah. That matters a lot down to the people level. Yeah. Good start. And I think you need to have an understanding of what's happening in the marketplace. And that's part of when I talk about where to play, what's happening in our industry today. And so that certainly comes down to competitors. Now, that's never sufficient, right? Because if all you're doing is playing catch up to your competitors, you're always going to be behind because you're doing the things that they did last month, this month, and they're off doing the things you're going to be copying next year right now. And so necessary, not sufficient. You've got to be talking to your customers. It's remarkable 
how many barriers exist when you work in a company to actually sitting down with the consumer or the customer, either in a B2B or B2C context. And it's really easy to show up at headquarters every day, badge in, badge out, and just talk to each other about your customer. And so get out there, do sales ride-alongs, join focus groups, talk to people, just be insatiably curious about who your customer is and what they need, because that can be the basis of a lot of the ideas you're going to need to create or, or do um, in order to bring something to market. So being customer-centric is, everybody says that, but you know, if you talk to most people at a company, when's the last time you actually sat down and talked to a customer, Mr. or Mrs. person, a customer-centric company? I think you'd often be shocked by the answer. And so you have to break down the barriers. You've got to get the legal and compliance team to just get on board with you getting out there and not needing to have like the most regimented screeners, et cetera. Like it's just, it's remarkable how easy it can be to not engage in that because you're dealing with the whirlwind of keeping, you know, approving copy or prioritizing the roadmap or, or whatever. And so some of the most important things we do as leaders often gets the least amount of time. And so being really diligent about your calendar management is really critical. Jared, just to stop you real quick. Sure. It would just uh, to like double click on this uh, customer centric uh, idea. I was just listening to a something about the the founder of Figma and like the growth track of Figma was just out of control. Mm-hmm. Like for the first five years, they made no money, and then all of a sudden, they just went crazy. And the way that the CEO was described is not just customer centric, but customer obsessed. And they talked a lot about how he just went on this journey, this roadshow where he was going to customers sitting down with them, what's, where are the barriers in the product? What do we need to approve? And they just said he was like so obsessed with customer feedback that that was basically, you know, how he can continue to build the product. And that's in a product context, but I don't think enough clients and, and leaders in retail, consumer goods, I think it's like you said, you get kind of caught up in the world when it's almost easy to forget like, oh, yeah, there are real human beings out there interacting with our products, using our products. And so I like the term customer obsessed because it's just like it never stops. It's something that's going to continually be a big focus. That's a seems like a low hanging fruit for all of us as we're building out new strategies and products. Do you agree? Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, I mean, you look at something like Amazon, right? Just deeply understanding how can we do it better on behalf of our customers, often putting today's profits kind of at risk to invest in tomorrow's great customer experience, knowing that it eventually will pay crazy dividends for that business. And so being customer obsessed is not a strategy, I would argue, right? It's maybe (laughs) a mission. It's because Mm -hmm. it's would anybody choose to not be customer obsessed, right? That's, I think that's always a barometer I use when I hear a strategy. It's like, well, would somebody choose to not do that? <laughs> you know, and if the answer is no, then, then it's just a must have, but it's not into itself a strategy. So how are you going to meaningfully do it different to be customer obsessed? Are you going to invest in different capabilities within your company to have social listening or to be, to have more insights as a business than what your, um, what your competitors are going to have? That starts to get more at, what would be a strategy. But to your point, Billy, being customer obsessed, I think is is absolutely critical. And eventually obsessed won't be enough and we'll come up with another kind of even h- a higher level of customer love. But that's got to be core to any business. I think according to TikTok, the word obsessed is here to stay okay. for a minute at yes. least. All right. But Jared, when it comes to true differentiation, I think something you said is really interesting. Like if everyone's doing it, you're always going to be playing catch up. If everyone is customer obsessed, then that's not a strategy. It's just table stakes. 
What are some of the frameworks or tools or criteria in your brain that you use to think about what true differentiation is? Like help walk us through an example or two of where you have seen a company go from not differentiated into some strategy that differentiates them and has helped them grow their business. Loyalty programs, I think, are one that we talk a lot about that could be a good one, but don't want to limit you to loyalty programs, knowing that you are working in everything from financial services to media to healthcare. Yeah. So I often think about this at like the corporate level. And if that's too zoomed out, let me know. But I, you know, if you think about like Southwest Airlines, mm-hmm. right? And what has made them successful over the years, people would love to copy Southwest and the kind of customer love that historically they've been able to generate. And when they try to copy it, they're trying to copy like one sliver of it, right? Like, oh, well, if we, if we just hire more fun flight attendants, it's just, you know, it'll all work out, right? Without recognizing that Southwest has made a series of interconnected strategic choices and investments that collectively create a differentiated place in the market, right? And so if you think about the history of Southwest, they started with much more of a point-to-point model. So they eschewed the kind of traditional hub-and-spoke model of we're going to set up at O'Hare and we're going to run big operations out of here, right? And they served underserved markets, places that didn't have Delta, American, um, United, or, or their kind of predecessors in the marketplace at that time. So they made very specific where to play choices around the customer segments and the routes that they were going to choose that let them kind of operate a little bit under the radar, so to speak, as they were growing the business. They also, for the longest time, only flew 737s. So they made very different kind of asset choices around structuring their business that leads to much easier maintenance, right? You only have to have people who know how to service one airplane. You only need to keep the parts available for one type of airplane. And so that's kind of a configuration choice that they're making that's that's quite different. And so when you fly point to point and you only have one air or plane type, you can really reduce the likelihood of delays, right? And so that becomes certainly a part of the differentiator for the, the Southwest brand. So it's the it's much harder to replicate that if you're Delta, right? And so Delta's gonna have to go in a very different direction, mm-hmm. I would argue. Than Southwest is because they can't rip up their entire business. My heart goes out to car companies right now who are trying to compete with Tesla, right? Because if you're Ford, you have a dealer network that for a variety of legacy and political reasons, you're to some degree stuck with. And so you're trying to convince all of these companies because they are relatively independent entities to upgrade their facilities, to add supercharging stations to prepare themselves to sell electric vehicles and to not mark up the product kind of significantly when it hits your lot because the pricing power sits with the dealer. Hmm. Tesla doesn't have to worry really about any of that. And so from a competitive situation, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the uh, the legacy automakers go out and try to compete with that. Yeah, it's amazing. So Jared, if someone's listening and they've been tasked with overhauling an email program, or maybe they're not even tasked, but they're in the weeds of a a particular project. They're like, this is not working. We need to change course. They followed the framework. Maybe they followed the choice framework. They've done all their research. They understand the North Star and they've got it all together. But communicating the strategy and getting alignment to their boss or to a board or to an internal team is almost harder in some ways than finding and kind of determining the right strategy. And I know this is something that you do every single day of, okay, we've got a really great idea and we know this is the right direction. How can we convince, persuade the audience to believe 
any tips for someone that's uh, on a team and, and trying to create alignment around a new strategy in terms of how to communicate these ideas? Because that, that's a that's a pretty tricky part. And often, once you have the idea, you just go and you kind of it's so easy to overlook like, OK, let me pause and put this together in a really clear storyline. Yeah. So I'm actually going to go back to a question you asked me. That I think we didn't really answer, which is what makes a good strategist, right? Yeah. And so often people will get feedback in their careers of, or you'll hear this said about somebody, they're not very strategic, right? Mm-hmm. And then that feedback gets back to them. You're not, you just, it would be, it would be great if you'd be more strategic, mm-hmm. right? And, and Billy Fisher had a quote, actually, I'll quote him here. That's like telling someone like run faster, yeah. right? It's, it's not very helpful. Like what do you do with that? Be more strategic. And I think most people who get dubbed as quote unquote, not strategic have often, what people are reacting to is one of two things. One is they're not being as exhaustive as they could be in the option set that they're considering for these kind of critical choices that they have to make. Like they're just, they're not looking around the corners. They're not seeing what's coming. They, they didn't kind of check all the boxes, if you will, of kind of having a relatively pressure tested strategy. And so that's what frameworks can often do, right? They provide checklist of things to be mindful of, things to think about, the kind of what's necessary in order to do this. And I talked about the choice cascade. I love that framework. That framework's not applicable in every situation, right? I think sometimes people get a framework and they're like, this is a hammer. Now everything has become a nail. No, frameworks can be really dangerous when they're misapplied, right? And so nothing drives me crazier than seeing someone use a framework out of context because it's like, why are we talking about this? This isn't germane to the actual problem. So an over-dependence on frameworks is something that actually could be just as as risky. So that would be the first part. The second part is, is they're not a great communicator, actually, yeah. right? And we could spend hours talking about how do you sure. communicate writ large because I think the principles of communication certainly apply in the context of strategy, right? And so simplifying the storyline, actually creating, taking complexity and simplifying it, which is something that frameworks actually do quite nicely, is a really big part of that. And so if your strategy is needs 200 slides to communicate, that's just way too much information right. for anybody to absorb. And so one of my favorite quotes from school, and you were asking earlier, like, how does a strategist get made? I don't know. But how I got made was I went to uh, the undergraduate business program at the University of Virginia. And then I got my MBA at uh, Kellogg's uh, or Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. And I took a great class, Introduction to Management Consulting, as an undergrad. And Elizabeth Thurston would say, structure your communication and communicate your structure, which really, really helped mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to think about, hey, there's, there's three things we're going to talk to you about today. Or there's three choices we need to make as part of this strategy. Here's the path I'm recommending. Now let's walk through each of those. Let's walk through why. Thinking about the ordering and sequencing of information, you know, and being very audience centric when you go to communicate your strategy, right? What is the problem we're all facing? Mm -hmm. Do we all believe it's a problem? Are we experiencing the problem? Because if we're not there, we can't even talk about the options to address it, right? We actually have to start the conversation around just defining the problem, agreeing on it. And that's where data helps. It's where story helps, right? And being very audience-centric in that communication reflects that, you know, some people want to see the reams of data, right? And they're they're very quantitative and they want to kind of cut to the numbers. Other people, if you have one choice quote from a customer talking about an experience they recently had that didn't deliver on the brand promise, 
that can be just as powerful, if not more so, than a dashboard of data, right. and, totally. you know, red yeah. dots and downward arrows and things. And so that audience centricity and how people get moved to do something is really important. And then articulating the path forward again in a very structured way. So it can't be if you're running a product, here's the 60 features that we're going to build next year. Now you may actually build 60 features, although I'd argue you probably haven't made enough choices in that. What are the three kind of enduring themes that mm. those features ladder up to? Like this is all about personalization. It's all about easy omni-channel experiences. And it's all about blending physical and digital. Like, And all these different things we're doing in concert elevate us to do those three things. And so providing some amount of simplicity but also elegance to how you communicate the strategy, I think is really important. Such a good framework. One thing that resonated is how often we just miss the problem. I was giving this feedback yesterday. I was talking to somebody on my team who's really brilliant. She's sort of a commander in chief of getting shit done, <laughs> like super fast to just take action and gets more done in probably a day than I can do in a week. But we were talking about a really nuanced challenge with a client and how to solve it. And she had lots of ideas on what to do. And I think sometimes we forget, like, actually, are we really aligned on, like, what is the problem that we're solving? What's the core of this problem? What's driving it? What's the root cause? Do we all understand that? Are we on the same page about what that even looks like? Because a lot of people can add ideas about how to solve a problem once they understand it. But if you don't even know what problem you're solving, then every idea is going to sound like a great idea. So I love this idea of stop. Define the problem extremely well, clearly simplified. And then, you know, sometimes the solution set becomes collaborative on top of it. That's a prerequisite. Yeah. And that problem definition is really critical when you're trying to pitch the strategy or, or get everybody to onboard with your recommendation, right? It's even more critical at the very beginning. So Billy was asking, like, mm. where do you get started, right? I think actually the framing of the problem is really, really critical. Um, and what is it we're trying to accomplish here? Yeah. And it's not just the goals bit, but like, you know, you think about like a movie frame, there's some things that are in and some things that are out. And is this a close shot or is it a, is it a wide shot? And yeah. so the framing that you give to a problem will invariably provide constraints, both positively and negatively, to the solution sets that you start to imagine. Yeah. So there's always a, one of my favorite design thinking exercises for folks who take coursework in that space is if you ask people, Hey, design a vase. A vase? I, I, I a never vase. know. Let's go with vase. That. that sounds more sophisticated. Depends on how fancy you are today. <laughs> yeah, the vase. Yeah, I'm, a vase. I'm, I'm, I say finance, so <laughs> I'll, I'll go with vase. You know, the degrees of freedom there are pretty low, right? Like, right. you're either going to have something that's kind of narrower at the bottom and then widens toward the top, or the inverse of that, right? And, you know, there's different materials you could select, et cetera, and the shape could marginally change, but you're still going to get like a vase. If you ask people to define a way to enjoy flowers in the home, boom, like the solutions to that mm. problem as framed yeah. are going to be wildly different. And so that ties into like this ambition kind of levels I was talking about of like how, how far out are you trying to go? It's very much the jobs to be done framework for those who are familiar with that, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day, like you buy a vase to do something, which is to enjoy flowers in the home. But what if there was a subscription service that was getting you flowers on a regular basis? Like the, the ideation that can stem from that different problem definition is pretty wild. And so uh, that problem framing is really critical, both when you come to present, but I think just as importantly, when you kind of are kicking off the process as well. Yeah. And Jared, you reminded me, we, um, 
Adam Greco, who joined us from Amplitude, um, and the answer that he had that we just kind of glossed over that I thought was really interesting. We we're talking about advice for folks coming up in the industry. What skills do they need? And he's, he highly encouraged everyone to take some sort of theater class, acting class, improv class, creative writing class to help shape how you tell story and how you, how you uh, communicate in those senses, uh, in those areas. So some of what you were just saying kind of reminded me of that is, is a really great storyteller has those skills and abilities to take really complex problems and then and communicate them in a clear way. Well, and improv is a team sport. Yeah. Improv by yourself is pretty boring. Yeah. And so the ability to kind of riff and play off each other, the, the notion yeah. of yes mm-hmm. and strategy is a team sport too, yep. right? So you've got every step of the way, it gets better if there are more people involved than just you unto yourself. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. So as we all know, data continues to be one of the cornerstones of strategy, but so many of our clients will tell you that they really struggle with data. They struggle with accessibility to it, reliability, and I think even just decision paralysis around how much data do I need to know that I have the right strategy? What is your advice or prevailing wisdom on how to use data to ensure that you're making the right decisions about which strategic direction to go? It's a good question. Part of me goes back actually to your conversation with Adam just last week, where I love that exercise he talked about where there's all this data you could be collecting Mm -hmm. or that maybe you are collecting today, but what are the business questions you're trying to answer right now? And then what's the data we need in order to have have that in place? And I think I always start from the question and the choice that we have to make. And then you say, what would need to be true for this to be a good choice? And what data do we have at our disposal that suggests this is true or that says it's not? And maybe that data exists. And we need to go, we need to find some friends in the organization who are willing to kind of mine the system. And we're going to break down a ton of barriers and silos, which I know a lot of our clients have as it relates to data. But a lot of that data is already resident in the company. You just may not have access to it. But it's got to start from that question and what it is you're trying to accomplish. And then if the questions, the data that you don't have, that's when pilots and experimentation Mm -hmm. get really interesting, right? Like if this is a brand new to the world product or market, like there's no existing data that suggests there's a there there, right? And yet it can be really hard to spend $10 million building V1 of something in order to kind of go and test it and learn. And so this notion of agile, of experimentation, I think very much applies to marketing strategy and product strategy. What's the bare minimum we can get in place to know this critical uncertainty, this thing we don't know if it's true or not? How do we increase our confidence in as low cost a manner as possible. And so that would be the other side of data is the data that you intentionally go out and create for mm-hmm. yourself to know, hey, like we we ran a bunch of display ads around the core value prop of this thing we haven't built yet. Like what was the click-through rate on that? Like what's the how many people are pre-enrolling for a Ford F-150 Lightning? I am. If the <laughs> CEO of Ford is listening, I'd love to move up that list. But you know, I, there's all sorts of ways of actually, particularly in today's world, getting more data that we don't have in a, mm-hmm. in a really cost-efficient way. But it sounds like start with, if you don't have a baseline understanding of how many people are we starting with today, either because they're current customers or we think it's the market, and then how many people is a huge win for us? Like if we could get X number of people to do the thing we want them to do or to adopt this product or to use it in this way, then we should go drink about it. Like it sounds like you're kind of circling back to that idea of know how many people possible and then define what winning is and just understand it at sort of like fundamentally a human level, which I think often companies miss. 
Yeah, every product owner, every marketer should understand the P&L of the thing that they're selling. How many customers do you have today? Who are your most profitable customers? Mm -hmm. Who are your least profitable? Who are the customers you're losing money on? And and that like we often think about I'm in marketing and then the finance team is over here, right? Like when I talked about team sport, like you got to be best friends with the people who can help you understand the entire picture of the business that you're running. And in that business might be the smallest brand in the company's portfolio, it might be the entire company. But at every level, you've got to understand really intimately what makes that business tick, mm -hmm. what makes that product tick. Like how much does it cost us to do this, to create and manufacture and sell this product? What does it cost us to acquire our customers? A lot of folks don't have that information at their fingertips. And so before you can even think about what the future should be, you've got to understand the baseline, right? And yet you'd be surprised by how often the baseline's even not particularly well-defined or collectively understood because things, mm -hmm. again, are relatively siloed. And so a big part of what we do in our jobs is try to break down those silos by asking questions that aren't rocket science questions, right? It's almost just because the very reality that someone has an external partner coming in and being paid to do it, everybody kind of listens a little bit more and maybe moves a little faster because now there's a project and a timeline and a team around it huh. uh, and we darn well better get, get in order. And so breaking down silos is a huge part of what we do, but I would encourage anybody in a product or marketing role to really befriend the folks who can give them the collective picture. Yeah, for sure. Jared, you've already talked about cars a couple times, so I can see where your head's at already. But I was curious, is there an industry or a trend that right now that you're watching and paying attention to closely that that this has got, got your interest for, for whatever reason? When is a trend a fad and when is it like a new reality is something that I, if someone has a great framework for thinking through that, I'm all ears because I'm looking at things like the metaverse, right? And yeah. What's everyone's metaverse strategy and how... Where does Willow Tree play in the metaverse? And I think that that's to the point around framing, you can't really get a consistent definition of what the metaverse is. And so it's really hard to articulate kind of a value proposition in a space that's not overly well-defined, but I'm certainly tracking it to understand. I think the underlying technologies of the metaverse are really interesting in terms of obviously crypto and mm -hmm. NFTs, the these kind of shared environments where things can get done, where brands are inevitably going to have to think about building a presence in some way, shape, or form. Like there are real challenges to be solved in that space. And so figuring out the ones where we have license to play and the ability to win is certainly something that is top of mind for me as we look at that. But there's a lot that remains to be seen in what's arguably a very nebulously defined yeah. space. Amen. Metaverse is a weird one because there's sort of like, what could you add to your existing social media presence and how you live your life and your persona online? Just fairly to your point, like 2D sort of? Yeah. And then there's sort of this notion of like, but we might be coming upon a 4D world that nobody really knows how to build yet. It might involve a headset, but like that's not comfortable. So it probably involves like new devices, technologies so that you can actually be immersive in experiences that we can't build today. And that is such a strange and wildly different. It's oh, like yeah. you can either live on Earth, you can take a rocket to outer space kind of, or you could like go live on the moon. It's yeah. like, I have no idea how to function in those spaces right now. Well, if you take like virtual reality as like a component of the metaverse, right? And again, I think when you can take something nebulous and make sense out of it, which is what a strategist often does, if you just think about like virtual reality as an experience, I'm a huge Disney fan. I spent time working mm -hmm. there. We didn't really touch upon that much in our <laughs> conversation, but you know, the ability to tell a story that's 360 in happening around you, like 
I don't know if you've ever been to New York and gone to sleep no more, but it's like this super immersive theater experience, right? And I think they're putting on some version of Macbeth on like three different floors of a warehouse that you just explore on your own. It is a wildly different form of experiencing theater, right? Whereas theater is historically kind of right there in front of you. Now it's very much around you. You can actually interact with it. You can change the story to a degree. The ability to do that in a virtual environment could be really interesting. And so you start thinking about what are those movies and storytelling? How does that technology enable a new and different way of telling a story, Mm -hmm. which is a timeless enduring need and something that Disney's been doing since the early 20s? That's a really interesting question. Jared, I'm always very curious to know which brands are you actually loyal to and why? So I love to give guests the opportunity to talk positive trash about a brand that you love. You think they're doing interesting things in marketing, engagement, their product, they're just differentiated for you. Who do you want to talk positive trash about? I love or I really admire brands who convince you to pay way more for something than you historically <laughs> yeah. been paying for it. And so I would put something like a Yeti at the yeah. top of that list. We were in Charleston recently and I went out of my way to go to a Yeti store, which I think just signals that they've done something with that brand. Now, certainly they've innovated in the product itself, but the reality is I'm not out hunting bear where I need to store <laughs> meat for five days like at perfectly frozen temperatures. I'm hosting like a tailgate where an igloo cooler would have been more than sufficient. Yet I have this like covetous feeling toward most of Yeti's products. And so I went into that store. I didn't buy anything. I was just checking out like the new colors, which is really the only thing that's changing assortment to assortment. And so I really admire what they're doing. I put Solo Stove in that, mm-hmm. in that camp. Both of those companies are relentless at following you around the internet. So if you've ever hit their website once, their retargeting is really good. And so anytime you're at CNN or New York Times, like they're taking off all the ads. So they just kind of, they don't leave. Uni would be another one, the pizza Mm -hmm. oven maker. These are the products that like I, you know, where you sit on it for a while, you're like, I just, I can't justify (laughs) it. But then they just kind of wear you down and you're like, you know, I'm all in, let's do it. So that's just like a cloud. I don't know if there's a name for it, but it's this group of, of folks who've, you know, yeah. they offer a better product. I think yeah, quality meets cool. Yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah. I just saw a Yeti sports chair, camping chair at Dick's Sporting Goods for $300. Uh, is, is oh, of course. And it's like, yeah. wow. Um, and, and Solo Stove is now marketing like a little tiny like desktop fire uh, thing. That's like, I don't know how much it is, <laughs> but it's probably more than a hundred dollars. And it's like, okay, we we took a bonfire and now there's going to be a little desk fire. Uh, it's just fascinating. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. I think you are, we've been saying this a lot lately, which is great, but I think you're <laughs> another guest where as soon as we can get you back on to keep talking, we got through about 5% of the questions that we wanted to cover today, which is, I think, a great sign. But thank you for being with us. Thank you for being here. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Same to our listeners. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening in. Thanks and for having me. Thanks, Jared. We'll see you next time. Thank you.